Folks, a very good morning. You're welcome as you join with us. Julie already has taken 500 words out of my uh, sermon for this morning, so you're now very thankful for that. Uh, Julie is very right, Stevie Wonder. I didn't know it was his 18th album, but it was written and produced in 1976, long before I was born. But whenever I went on to iTunes and had a look and saw what tracks were on it, there were some that were familiar to me. And I did a bit of background work at this album called Songs in the Key of Life. And Stevie Wonder, it turns out, through 74, 75, had become very disillusioned with life. He got to a point where he had lost all faith in a, in a country that by that stage had, had said, yes, we, we recognize black and white as equal. There was a lot of talk, but there was very little action. He also had no faith in the government doing its bit for the people. He had lost all faith in what a government would do for the betterment of a country and for its people. So he took to writing 21 songs. And in 1976, August that year, Songs in the Key of Life was produced and released. Stevie Wonder, what he was doing in that was trying to write 21 songs that would help us unlock life. So he was writing songs with a purpose, songs that had a key. Here's how you survive. Here's how you get through life. It's not all that bad. Here's the key. Stick it in the lock, open it up, and everything will be great. One of the songs that we'll probably all recognize, Isn't She Lovely, was written at the time whenever Stevie Wonder's daughter was born. And he writes with a heart of life. He writes trying to get us to think and express the difficulties, the joys, the sorrows. But again, with one purpose, to get us through life, to get us through our disillusionment, to get us through the things we don't like, to get a place away from it all. Songs in the Key of Life for us as a Christian church is going to be very different. We're not going to propose 10 easy steps for how to survive. Rather, we're going to take over 3,000 years worth of church history as we find it in the Psalms and how it's been expressed to help us engage with our God, who is the giver of life. Whenever you think of Psalms, it's part of Presbyterian tradition. We don't really go much in for tradition here. We know that. But at one point, you wouldn't have sung anything else but psalms. The psalms were written over a 600-year period. Somewhere from the time of David and a few before that had been kept in Jewish tradition, right up until the post-exilic period, that time whenever the, the children of God were brought back to their promised land after having been taken captive in Babylon. The stuff that we've been looking at on Sunday evenings uh, this year. So over a 600-year period, you had songwriters creating what is a songbook for Israel. And some of the commentators call it that, a songbook for Israel. This formed their worship. And how we have our Psalms right now, how we get them as we look at them in the Bible, all come from Nehemiah and Ezra. Whenever they reordered temple life and temple worship, 
That's how we get our Psalms. The Psalms are systematic in terms of they come in five different books. Uh, they're recognized in different categories of praise, of, of mourning, of, of seeking God, and uh, Psalms that were set apart for special times of public worship. They were the songbook of Israel. Well, we're going to look and see how honest were these writers. See, we have a thing that's grown up in Victorian Christianity, the legacy that we are living in, that says that Christianity on the surface must be nice, it must be pleasing, and it must be acceptable. Nice, pleasing, and acceptable. You take your lot in life and you go for it, no matter what. And we come off with the mantra that God must have his good in it for some reason. And you know, that is true. But it must never be a mantra that stops us from being honest with God. Because songs in the key of life, as we see it, is the honesty and the richness of these psalms that holy people were inspired to write in moments of life's darkest days and in the moments of the highest joys of a nation. Our faith is never something to be nice. It's never something to be comfortable with. Our faith is to be alive and living and raw. And this morning we're going to dip into Psalm 23 to see what that looks like for us. I would tell you to turn your, in your Bibles to page 555 to Psalm 23, but probably of all the Bible passages we'll ever cover here in Kirkpatrick Memorial, this is probably the one you don't need to open. But I would encourage you to open it, because sometimes our familiarity with it can, can lose us in what it's saying and the little words that are in there that we need to pick up on. You wouldn't get a prize for telling me or answering this question, uh, when is Psalm 23 most used? And it's always used, uh, not always, but mainly it is the number one choice for funeral services. And whenever you go deeper into that and, and find out why, it's because of that one line, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So it's very easy to categorize Psalm 23 as exclusively for funerals. But I want to propose to you this morning that actually Psalm 23 is a psalm for all of life. It's a psalm for every moment of life and not just reserved for those moments at a funeral service or when we're mourning. We're, we, we kick off with an image. February and March are very busy times on the farm. If you are a farmer, you'll know that. It's lambing season. Now, the majority of us might appreciate lambs skipping about the field with the daffodils, and we know that that's spring coming. And that's quite nice and clean for us because we don't have to see what goes on during lambing season. Between February and March, it's a 24-hour business in lambing. It's hard work. It's long hours. It involves the farmer, their spouse, their children, and whoever else they can get in to help with this busy time of year. There's a lot of feeding to be done. There's a lot of caring. There's a lot of waiting. 
nights spent out sleeping on the hay while you're waiting for your sheep to birth. And then there's the problems of sickly lambs, or the problems of lambs that aren't taken immediately by their mother, where the lamb has to be brought into the farmhouse, put in front of the fire, and given a bottle of milk, just like you would a baby that was born. It's a busy time of year. It's hectic, and it's not what we imagine farming to be, or or lambing, or shepherding to be. In some homes, you'll see a very famous tapestry. It's called the Good Shepherd. It's, a, it's a, an old figure with a halo behind them holding a lamb in gowns of scarlet and, and blue. And we get that image that a shepherd is this figure who's clean and nice and only deals with the nice little lamb, fluffy little lamb, in their arms. We never want to think of what it's like on the farm getting the point, getting to the point where we have lambs about that will grow into sheep, and so the cycle continues. Whenever we read Psalm 23, we must never look at it in the tapestry image of the Good Shepherd. This is a psalm rooted in a farming life. This is a psalm rooted in the highs and the lows of what it means to be a shepherd. So the psalmist who wrote this, we believe to be David, presents to us, his readers, a song about everyone needing someone to care for them. And not just an idea, but that the great shepherd is God. There's no other image in all of Scripture that goes right from the start of the Bible right to the end as this idea of a shepherd caring for his sheep. So Psalm 23 starts off by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. The psalmist says there's no one else. There's nothing else. No matter what you think can care for you, whoever can care for you, there is no one but the Lord because he is my shepherd. And because of that, the psalmist says, I shall not be in want. The psalmist recognizes that although we cannot see God, and although we cannot see now the living body of Jesus Christ, faith draws us to our Creator and our Savior as those who sustain us and those who care for us while we're on this journey of life. No pay packet will ever sustain us. No family or home will ever make us truly happy. No circumstances in life will ever give us rest. And certainly the relentlessness of this world will never ease our burdens. So where the psalmist starts in verse 1, acknowledging that the Lord is my shepherd, we go on a journey of all of life to realize how he is the true shepherd of all. So verse 2 starts us off on our journey with the seasons of life. So if you think of Psalm 23, it's divided up into different seasons or stages of life. They're not in a chronological order, and they're not just once. They could be repeated, but the psalmist gives us this this idea of what uh, we're to be thinking about. 
So verses 2 and the start of verse 3 speak of how we are led into quiet and calm moments of life. Those moments, green pastures by still waters, restoring my soul. Dwell on that image for a moment. I should say not too long or I might lose you as you drift off back into that slumber that you didn't want to be woken from this morning. Green pastures and meadows, a warm sun overhead, still glassy waters. In a shepherd's life, these are the moments when a lamb is safe. It's knowing nourishment, it's knowing security, and it's knowing happiness. It's also learning how to walk It's learning how to communicate in this social group of sheep. Yes, sheep are sociable creatures. It is in these moments where the shepherd knows that he can rest easy because his flock has been well cared for. What about our moments in life? A season in life where we are knowing that full rest of God. Not the moments where we can sit back and cross our arms and say, well done, look at what I've done. Rather, moments where we look and we think how good God has been to us. A moment to catch our breath, to rest in him and to know that we are safe. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, we get an invitation from Jesus offering us this security. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There are seasons in life where we need to rest. We need to know that we are safe. And the shepherd God is the one who provides for these moments. It may be rest from the pressures of projects of work, where life has been stress-filled and time has been busy. It may be rest from the normality of the routines in life as you get a chance to go away on a holiday. It may be those windows of an hour or an hour and a half where you can retreat with a friend to a coffee shop and enjoy some stillness, some quietness. These are moments that the shepherd God has provided for you to enjoy him. Not to sit back and forget about him, but to recognize that the Lord, the shepherd, is the one who gives us rest. Next, we move from the green pastures, and we now start out onto an open track, a pathway. So we leave the field, and verse 3, the end of it, sees the shepherd leading the sheep along the paths of righteousness. I fully recognize that the majority of us here are not farmers, But if you chose that you wanted to take on a little small holding and get some sheep, the first thing you would learn very quickly is you do not leave sheep up to their own devices. Sheep have a wonderful knack of following each other. They don't have a democratic vote as who's the leader. Whoever starts going off, the rest will follow. And it doesn't matter what hedge, it doesn't matter what ditch, it doesn't matter what stream, but like little lemmings, they will make their way through and fall off whatever precipice they come against. Sheep, as the movie Babe taught us, are ignorant 
creatures. Sheep need to be managed. They need to be brought along wherever the shepherd desires them to go. In Psalm 23, the shepherd recognizes this and says, you cannot, we cannot be left up to our own devices. Rather, the shepherd is the one who leads us in the paths that he knows. The paths of righteousness, the paths that are right for us, because it is the shepherd who has brought us and leading us along them. Philip Keller, who is a shepherd turned um, theologian, said this in his book on Psalm 23. Scripture points out that most of us are a stiff-necked and stubborn lot. We prefer to follow our own fancies and turn to our own ways. There's something almost terrifying about the destructive self-determination of a human being. It is inexorably interlocked with personal pride and self-assertion. We insist we know what is best for us even though the disastrous results may be self-evident. For Keller, he looks at Scripture, and he sees what Scripture says about us as human beings, created fully in the image of God, but yet fallen in sin. We are stiff-necked and a stubborn lot, prone to self-destructive ways. Just like sheep. But our shepherd God leads us along paths to keep us moving. There are times when we need to be out of the pasture meadows and move on to whatever's next. And our shepherd God leads us along paths that are righteous because he is the one who knows where we are going. In his book, I Shall Not Want, Dave Tomlinson uses the story of Professor Albert Einstein to illustrate the need for us to know where we're going. Einstein was in the middle of a lecturing tour on the western, eastern, sorry if you were in uh, my classes at, uh, during the week, you know I get my east and west mixed up. Um, eastern seaboard, New York, Boston. He was in a lecturing tour. And he got on a train, he couldn't find his ticket, and there he was, rifling through his stuff, trying to find his ticket. And the guard came and said, oh, Professor Einstein, don't worry, we know who you are, it's fine. But for Einstein, it wasn't. This didn't calm him down. Rather, he said, no, you don't understand. It's not important to me that you know who I am. What is important is that I know where I'm going. For Einstein, the busyness of a lecture tour had meant he had no idea what was next. He was just pointed to a train and on he got. But on his ticket, he knew where he was going. We like sheep, need to know where we are going. And our shepherd God will lead us in the paths he knows and has chosen for us because they are paths that are good. So as we move along the path from the pasture onto the track, so we come to verse 4 that talks about the valley of the shadow of death. It's important for us to understand the image that the psalmist is giving here as it would have been understood uh, in its original context. Palestine, biblical Palestine, is quite a rocky country. You don't have to dig too far down to get to, to rock. And with that, you have deep valleys, some very wide and some very narrow. 
They're so deep that unless the sun is directly overhead, no light gets into them. And in fact, there are some valleys where light doesn't even touch. And at times, a shepherd would have to lead his flock through this path. Now think about a dark, quite narrow, rocky valley where the shadows always fall, where there are boulders, snakes, and other predators waiting in the rocks to get their next bite of dinner. Does that valley of the shadow of death seem more real than, than something, something else? The shepherd walks and the sheep follow, not knowing what rock may injure a sheep, not knowing what snake may be lying in wait, not knowing what animal may be around the next boulder. It is the valley of the shadow of the unknown, and that unknown may end up in the death of one of the sheep. But notice what the psalmist says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this valley is not an end. We don't just come to it, or the shepherd doesn't just come and stop. It is something to be passed through. And the psalmist writes, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and the tools of your hand will keep me right. Your rod and your staff, they comfort and guide me. They knock me back into line whenever I need to be knocked back into line. There are seasons in life when we face valleys like this one. Valleys where shadows are cast, where we cannot see a way ahead. They are cold, dark places where we feel isolated and under threat. There may be times of mourning, of pain, of suffering, of uneasiness. We don't know what danger the next step will bring, but these are valleys that we must journey through. Peter, in writing to the church dispersed throughout Asia Minor, tells God's people that there is a new life to come in heaven with Jesus. And he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7. Peter tells us that the valleys of the shadow that we go through are only for a little while and that there is good to come through them. These valleys allow faith to develop. They allow us to have a, a growing image and knowledge of who our God and Father and Savior Jesus Christ are so that at the end of it all, we can praise him. How long is the valley? I don't know. But the valley of the shadow of death must be walked through, allowing the shepherd to be the one who leads us. If you were here last Sunday morning, you will have witnessed a courageous young teenager standing at this very spot, sharing her story of the valley 
of the shadow of death. And she has come through it. She praises her God. She recognizes that he is the one who has led her and her family through an extremely difficult time in life. A lesson from our teenagers, but yet one rooted in Psalm 23 that says we will fear no evil because the shepherd, the shepherd God, is there to lead us through. We move on in our journey. We go through this valley of the shadow and we come to verse 5 that takes us to a place of nourishment. We're brought before a table. But the guests who are sitting at the table are perhaps not the guests we would like. Because the psalmist describes, you prepare a table before me where my enemies are invited to come and sit. What a dinner party. Don't think we'd like to go to one of those where the people who have hurt us, offended us, people that we really didn't want to bump into again are sitting right there at the table and a place has been led for me or for you. This section actually changes the whole tone of the psalm because now rather than an image of a shepherd and the sheep, there's an image of us in human form coming to sit at a table where the images of our enemies are going to be there. So what is this psalm telling us now? Well, here's again another season in life. The commentators are divided on why the change and what this means. But whenever we look at the full view of Scripture, a table prepared in the presence of my enemies. As we look at the life of Jesus and how Jesus lived, there's only one thing we can draw from this, and that is the season of reconciliation. A moment where we are placed with those we don't want to be with. We are to sit down and look at them across the table eye to eye, and we are to make conversation over dinner. I'm sure that there's been a season in each of our lives where this is familiar to us. We have regrets with how we handled a situation that left us feeling hurt or perhaps knowing that we've hurt others. We have an air of superiority that we are better or superior in our thinking to others. We have set ourselves up as seemingly more spiritual than others in our fellowship so that we can be noticed rather than them. The table that is set before us in verse 5 of Psalm 23 is not a table of superiority where we can laud it over those who are sitting there in front of us. But it is a table of reconciliation. We're looking each other in the eye. Grievances can be shared and forgiveness given. And perhaps it's not with an individual. Perhaps it's not with someone who has hurt us or wronged us, but perhaps it has been an incident in our lives that we're still battling with where we actually need to be reconciled with ourselves and ultimately with our Father and Shepherd, God. Reconciliation is not just between two people, but it's reconciliation within ourselves 
as we reconcile things of our past and allowing the Good Shepherd to come and lead us in His ways, into better ways, so that we can know we are truly forgiven both within ourselves and knowing the forgiveness of our Savior. Jesus shows that reconciliation is a serious and important issue for anyone who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Matthew 6, 14 to 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is serious stuff. This is what Jesus is saying a life that follows him is to be like, a life of reconciliation, a life of forgiveness. The psalmist from over 3,000 years ago recognized that this was what was part of being a follower of God, being part of God's people, being part of a living faith. And how much more is it now for us as we live in the Jesus times where Jesus has reconciled himself to us? Or, sorry, reconciled us to himself. So let's finish off with verses 5 and 6. And we finish off with a vision of blessing. Verse 5 shows us the blessing of our security. We are, as God's people, anointed in abundance and marked as his throughout all of life. We will know God's goodness and we'll know his love for us. Not coming into situations to vindicate us where we are in error, but rather as God's natural way of affirming us as he leads us in his paths. We are safe. We are secure in all the promises God has given. And ultimately, we are safe and secure in our reception into the house of the Lord. The shepherd God wants us to follow him. We are the other sheep that Jesus talks about in John 10. Everything that Jesus has done is to bring us into his fold. John 10 is the great New Testament shepherd passage. And Jesus lets us know that he is the good shepherd who is calling us into his flock so that we can be led by him, knowing safety and security from the danger of being snatched away by the devil. The first of our psalms and songs in the key of life is a psalm for living. For every season in life, we are presented with a way that the shepherd leads us so that we do not fear because he is the one who is taking us there. If you don't believe me, let me read from John 10 as we finish. Three statements Jesus makes. He calls us to listen to these, to take him seriously and to take our discipleship seriously. Verse 7, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have taken a shepherd's look at Psalm 23. 
We have looked at concepts of the farming world that may be alien to us. But thank you that no matter what our background, no matter what our culture, no matter what um, our jobs and our positions in life, we are here as equals. We are here as a church of your people. And you are giving us confidence this morning to trust in you because you are our good shepherd. You are the gate by which we enter into the fold. You are the shepherd who has laid down his life for us. And you are the shepherd who knows us. So as we move from here, as we go into this world and whatever season of life we're currently journeying through, give us a firm confidence. Nothing woolly in its nature that, that would have us doubt but a firm belief that you're the one who is our shepherd, leading us through the joys of resting in the pastures green. But you're also the shepherd taking us through the valleys of the shadows. You're the shepherd who has prepared a table for us so that there can be reconciliation. And you're the shepherd who will lead us home Thank you. And commit this to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.